This episode is brought to you by ProMensal. If you can't remember where you put your keys, that's called normal. And if you don't know what to do with a key, uh, we call that dementia. Welcome to Thriving in Menopause, brought to you by Prevention Magazine. I'm Andrea Duval, and today we're chatting about our brains. Now, I know many of us make jokes about losing our car keys, but today we're going to explore what perimenopause and menopause does to our brains and why now is the time we should start protecting our brains. So joining me once again is one of my favourite guests, Dr Ginny Mansberg. Ginny, in addition to being a GP, you've just written a fabulous new book called Save Your Brain. In it, you explore the emerging research about the relationship between our health at midlife and our risk of dementia when we get older. I've got to say, yeah. I gulped when I read it and I felt a stab of guilt about the red wine I had last night and about sleeping in today instead of going to the gym um, because you say that the best time to turn your brain around is in your 40s, 50s and 60s. Yeah, that's what the evidence is suggesting and I, I guess the reason is that there are changes happening in your brain a long time before you start getting symptoms so that you start forgetting things or forgetting how to do things or even the personality changes so that are fairly ubiquitous in um, dementia. So you might be thinking in your mid-60s that now's a really good time to start thinking about your brain, but it's possibly too late. Um, not that it's ever too late to completely turn, you know, to, to do a little bit of um uh, improvement of your brain. But if you want to really, really have this up at the pass, you've got to be starting to do things in your, in midlife. We used to think that dementia just happened um, or it was, it was oh, you had the gene in what happened to your parents and grandparents. Um, but we know that's no longer so. Yes, it's estimated that up to a third of dementia can be prevented altogether and we can at least delay its onset by five years. That's everybody can do that. Wow. Um, Jenny, maybe we should define exactly what dementia is. Yeah, so I think it's it's brain failure um, and how you would know someone has dementia. I think everybody says, oh, I'm forgetting everything and lots of my patients come in and say, I forgot to turn up to lunch um, with a friend three times in the last three weeks. I think I've got dementia. So that's probably not dementia. Where um, if you can't remember where you put your keys, that's called normal. And if you don't know what to do with a key, uh, we call that dementia. Um, so, you know, if you look at your car key and go, I don't even know what to do with that. I would not know how to, um, what part of uh, what vehicle to put this in or, or is, does this go in a bathroom cupboard, I don't even know what to do with that. That is brain failure where you get a complete distortion. Um, your your brain just doesn't work so well. And why is it that it affects more women than men, do you think? This is interesting. It's like the $64,000 question. We don't really know why. So we know that estrogen is one of those hormones that certainly is a brain-repairing hormone. And you can see that in rats and mice, but also in petri dishes, but you can even see it in humans, that estrogen actually comes to the rescue of the brain. And so when you lose it, you get some fairly big changes happening in your brain. But why do women get more dementia in the first place? Because twice as many women are, are affected by dementia as men. Um, and it's the biggest cause of death in women in Australia, while cardiovascular disease is the biggest cause of death in men. So we don't really know what it is. We know that there are estrogen receptors literally all over the brain, particularly in those sort of memory centres. But, you know, women get more mental health stuff 
anyway. I mean, we're much more likely to get depression and we're much more likely to get anxiety. And maybe this is a manifestation of that. It's possible. Um, and it's also possible that, you know, we live longer. So we just have more opportunities to get dementia because we live, you know, about 70 years longer than men in Australia. You're talking a lot about estrogen's effect on the brain and obviously when once we start getting into perimenopause, we start to see a decline in the amount of estrogen, protective estrogen in our brain. What else goes on in women's brains? Well, this is really interesting because if you have a look at the brain fog, which you know, we, we've only recently described that as an actual entity because it didn't have a medical diagnosis, you know, five, ten years ago. But if you have a look at brain fog, which we've sort of got a bit of a definition for now, it affects about two-thirds of women, but it peaks in perimenopause. Now, what's really interesting about that, as all listeners to this podcast know, is that it's the phase before you go into menopause and some days your estrogen is sky high and some days it's through your bootstraps and it's different every single day. But why is that your peak time for um, for brain fog? We particularly know it, it kind of links in fairly well with low estrogen levels. It also links in fairly well with depression. And we know that peri in particular is the time of highest risk. We call it a period of vulnerability for anxiety and depression. Um, and that can definitely make your um, brain fog worse. It's really tied to hot flushes. And yet hot flushes peak a year after menopause. They don't actually peak, you know, in peri. Um, a lot of women get them, don't get me wrong, but they don't tend to peak then. And we don't really know why brain fog is such a massive peri issue and why seems to start getting better a year after menopause. So if anyone tells you that they understand what's going on with brain fog, they don't. And it's the same thing with the um, with dementias. We don't really understand how estrogen and the various levels of estrogen that happen through peri and then the gradual decline. So two years after you've gone through menopause, that's when your estrogen hits rock bottom. I don't really know how that changes the brain exactly. When I read about Alzheimer's disease, I read about brain plaque and these webs of an effect that stop our mental pathways. Is that a good way of describing it? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got a couple of abnormal proteins that build up. I think everybody's heard of beta amyloid and then there's tau. Um, they both do fairly different things to the nerves. So they interfere in what we call the synapses, which is where how two nerve cells talk to each other. The thing is, it's not the full story. So it's we can't just say that that's what happens, although it's a very big feature of Alzheimer's disease. We can look at brains of people that are full of beta amyloid and even tau they're functionally normally. They never had any Alzheimer's disease. At the same time, we have all of these what we call monoclonal antibodies, so different drugs that are being trialled to eliminate beta amyloid out of the brain and they don't really do anything. I mean, they certainly eliminate the beta amyloid out of the brain, um, but they make very limited, if any, difference to people's function. So it's just not the full story, but we know it is a definitely a feature of particularly Alzheimer's disease. We'll be right back after this. Perimenopause can actually start in your 40s. Declining estrogen production during perimenopause brings on changes to menstrual cycles and often the onset of hot flushes, night sweats, mood swings and sexual problems. Promensal Peri is specifically designed for perimenopausal women and can help relieve these common menopausal symptoms. Promensal Perry is available at leading pharmacies across Australia and offers a cost-effective treatment at under $1 a day. 
When things start to change, try Promensal Perry. Always read the label and follow the directions for use. Okay, we're back. Okay, anything else? What about stress if you're someone that lives on your nerves? So the the data that links anxiety, which is easier to quantify and measure than stress, um, that link with dementia is actually been much harder to establish. But the link between depression and dementia is absolutely irrefutable, and particularly depression in midlife, which is really hard because midlife, particularly for women, is the time of peak risk for anxiety and particularly depression and even suicide. So it's a really tall order to keep your mental health in check. But if you don't do it for you because you don't feel you deserve it because so many women don't get the help that they need, almost because they just don't feel worthy, if you don't do it for your own mental health, do it to protect your brain and to save your brain because we know that midlife depression is such a massive risk for dementia subsequently. And similarly, getting treated for depression can save your brain. So if anyone is listening to us who's been thinking, I don't know, there's something not quite right, and you suspect you might have a little bit of early depression, please take it seriously. We really care about you and we really want your brain to be saved. So if you are that person that goes, I think there might be something wrong, um, is there some sort of test that you can have? Yeah, so I think probably the easiest one to download is the DAS21. Um, and you can download that anywhere and it just gives you a result and it puts you into mild, moderate, um, severe and extremely severe for um, anxiety, depression and stress. Um, and you can take those results with you to your GP, which I think is the next place to go. Oh, right. That sounds really um, worthwhile. And what about if you are f- frightened that you might have dementia, be developing dementia? Um, I know you said that you can't do a um, – that, that doing a genetic test is not necessarily a good marker. But if you personally feel that you have concerns, is there something you can do? Yeah, and I think a lot of people have concerns about their mum or, you know, their auntie or their sister or something like that. And there are actually tests that you can do, um, and I there's so many. I go through them all in the book. There's like a whole chapter on it about the use, utility of different tests. There are some that your GP will do and there'll be some um, that you can do. The problem is that they mostly test for established dementia um, as opposed to, oh, I don't think my brain is performing that well. I think I might be en route to, to dementia. That is much harder to diagnose. But I want everyone to know that we are busily investigating all the time different tests, including blood tests. Some of those are being investigated by the Florey Institute in Melbourne. And we should not too far, in not too far's time, actually have blood tests that can tell you that, yes, you are actually in the process of developing a brain brain problem. So... If you, I guess this is this is the big question. If you are told, yeah, you are on that path, are there ways that you can halt or delay its development? It's everything we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's having a healthy diet, doing some exercise. If you have any depression, you know, go and deal with it. Um, sticking to a strict circadian rhythm, making sure that you've sorted your your sleep out. Um, all of those things, if you have high blood pressure, particularly in midlife, uh, the numbers that we need to bring your risk of de- dementia down 
um, are much lower. So we might be, you might think, oh, my blood pressure, my top number is 136, so I'm fine. That is fine, but not if you want to avoid uh, dementia. We need that top number below 120, particularly in midlife. So go and see your GP and get all the tests done. Okay. So to sum up, Ginny, what's the one thing that you would say to listeners um, as soon as they've um, finished listening to this podcast that they should do today? I would say anybody who's listening to this podcast is probably in midlife. So I would say please go and get your uh, your appointment with your GP as soon as possible because that's really, really important. And just get the easy stuff checked. Get your blood pressure checked. Get your thyroid levels checked. Um, get your cholesterol checked. Those sorts of things are really good. If you think that there's a chance that you have a hearing issue, I would get a hearing test because I think that's really, really important. And um, we know that deafness is also a big risk for dementia. Um, and so we want to get you into a hearing aid sooner rather than later. Um, and uh, make sure that your mental health is good. That's a really important one. Get enough sleep, have a decent diet, do some exercise and, and stay employed. Make sure that your career has got some longevity in it. Great advice. Look, thank you so much for joining us, Ginny. Um, and thanks, listeners, for joining us. Do grab a copy of Dr. Ginny's new book, Save Your Brain, and keep it handy. It's packed with so much great information. You'll find a link to purchase in the show notes. Meanwhile, for more practical advice to help you live your best life at midlife, do pick up a copy of Prevention Magazine. I'm Andrea Deval, and I'll see you next time. We'll be right back after this. Okay, we're back. We touched on briefly the fact that there is this um, family connection, I suppose, in some instances, though not all. Do you want to sh share your story, Ginny? Yeah, so um, I, I thought I'd talk about the APOE4 gene. I think most people have heard about it because Chris Hemsworth um, came out and said that he had had a test for it and he has this gene and in the book I explain why I don't think that's a particularly great idea to go and have that test um, but it is carried by 24% of the population so I would say that um, Chris is not that special you know he's there's certainly a quarter of people that have that that gene um, but at the same time um, what we what so in my family my husband's father died of dementia his all four grandparents died of dementia a very strong family history. Mm. And in my case, my grandmother died of dementia, but no one else. We suspect in my husband's family there probably is a genetic basis for it because it's very, very, very strong genetic history there. Um, we're not going to go and get him tested because there's simply nothing that you can do. If you find out you have that gene, all you're going to do is panic. Um, but what you can do is work very hard on your other risk factors and make sure that you've ticked every one of those boxes so that you can either delay it by five years or, you know, in third of cases, it can be avoided altogether. Okay, well, let's talk about what you can do. Yeah. So some of them are really boring and pedestrian and it feels like it's what doctors say about absolutely everything and that's because it works. <laughs> so um, if you have a healthy diet, and I'm really non-prescriptive about what that diet is, but pretty much all good diets seem to, you know, reduce your risk and all bad diets seem to increase your risk. So I think we can just say eat well. Um, in terms of exercise, the data to support exercising actually as a way to reduce de uh, dementia, pretty pathetic. Don't have a lot of that data really? to support it. Yeah, it's really a big gain. If I said to you, okay, Andrew, what we're going to do is we're going to do a study of high-intensity in interval training, 
to prevent dementia. So we're going to recruit um, 10,000 because that's what we need, 10,000 people um, into this trial and we're going to tell them to do hits three times a week and we're going to follow them up for 40 years. <laughs> Can you imagine sticking to that three times a week for 40 years? Not going to happen. We wouldn't get, well, it's not going to happen and we're also not going to get um, the funding to do that kind of trial, sure. to run a database that will house everybody. So we just don't have that data. But it kind of stands to reason that exercise would help, mainly because it helps bring down your blood pressure, brings down your cholesterol, prevents diabetes, and all of those things are such massive contributors to dementia overall that there were, it was the only thing that every single expert that I spoke to, every one of them did was um, was exercise. That, that's fascinating, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was the one binding thing that they were all doing to stave off dementia. How fascinating. When we talk about the big three things for, for leading a healthy lifestyle, as you say, it's eating well, um, it's exercising, and the other one that keeps coming up is alcohol. Does this show up in the studies around dementia? We just have really, really inconsistent data. But what we suspect is that it's a J-curve. And what a J-curve means is having zero alcohol is slightly worse for you, for your brain, than having one or two standard drinks a day of red wine in particular. Um, but once you get to three standard drinks a day, your risk just starts going through the roof. So if you can picture a letter J, that's what your risk looks like. So with zero not being great, but three being terrible for you. So probably the sweet spot is about one glass of wine a night. With a, and, and Australian government guidelines are that we take a night off, you know, twice a week. Yeah. You only have 10 standard drinks a week. And that's not for brain health. That's around cardiovascular health and other things like that, cancer risk. Yeah. Okay. Um, tea and coffee. There's a lot of stuff coming out now about the, the benefits of coffee. A hundred percent. I keep... Still, it's like one of those myths that won't die, like that you can't admit that you have menopause. Um, it's like that you, all of my patients are so proud. They tell me I've given up coffee and I'm like, well, why? Why would you do that? I mean, the evidence around coffee is pretty strong, not only for dementia, but also for depression and Parkinson's disease and liver cancer. There's so many, and diabetes, like there's so many things that coffee does. And it's probably because it's packed full of antioxidants, which it is. Yeah. Definitely. And that's probably like a big part of it. And they're the flavonoids, you know, that, that we really talk about all the time as being really, really beneficial. Um, so it's probably that in large part. Um, and we're not really sure because a lot of coffee drinkers in some countries are also smokers. So that you'd think that that would undo, you know, the benefits. But it seems to just carry through in most trials. It's far less controversial than the drinking um, of alcohol. Interesting. But is tea as good as coffee? We don't have as many studies to support tea and tea is so many different things. You know, tea in China is very different to tea in India, which is very different to like a tisane tea. So we don't have the same robust data for tea, but it looks like it. it is. It looks like it certainly, you know, even with its caffeine, it seems to be totally fine for you. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book was the, the, the talking or the, the research around staying in the workforce and socialising being really super critical when it comes to our overall mental health, brain health and feeling happy in life. 
And they are inextricably linked as well. I mean, we really need to talk about that link with depression. But, yeah, in terms of staying in the workforce, you know, you, the staying in the workforce does a few things. Number one, um, you have to get up at the same time, you know, unless you're doing shift work. You have to get up every morning. You have to put on your clothes and you have to have a shower. And that keeps your circadian rhythms really, really robust and strong. So that's a really good start. The second thing is for most people, I mean, I do worry about those who are working from home and never go into the office. But for most people, there's a bit of socialising when you go to um, work. And that's a really good thing. Like I don't think you should think that unless you're a professor or like, you know, a high court judge, there's no point going to work. Even, you know, things like, being a shop assistant, you've got to engage with people. You've got to read their face. You've got to read their body language. You are using so many different parts of your brain on a daily basis. And we know that people who are isolated and don't socialise with people have a much more rapid deterioration of their brain than people who are out there um, actually, you know, interacting with people on a daily basis. And so I am really worried about, you know, if you're on your iPad, you're probably getting sold a whole lot of, like, uh, games that are like, you know, you must do this. The brain the training. Are begging you. Yes. And there's just no evidence for that at all. But what is worse or what I'm really concerned about is I don't want you spending time at home on your own in front of a screen. That does no, that does your brain absolutely no good whatsoever. We really, really, really want you, but like out, I'd rather you go to the club with your friends and have a chat. Um, maybe limit yourself to one beer, but, you know, I'd rather you do that than sit on a screen and do a brain game. That's really interesting. I did not expect that to be the outcome at all. Yes, I agree. It's so – but when you think about how hard it is in a social situation, particularly with a lot of people, you've got to be listening and you've got to be thinking about what people are saying and preparing your answers and, you know, looking around the room. It's quite a complex task for your brain to do. Mm, mm. And some people recommend things like, oh, learn one new skill a day or do something with the opposite hand and that sort of hand-eye coordination, mental um, gymnastics. Does, is there any evidence around that sort of thing? Again, it's just hard to get the study data for that, but it just makes sense. And the reason is we want your brain busily building new connections between different parts of the brain because we know that keeps it young and that if you allow the brain connections to shrink because you're not creating any new ones, that is a real problem. So if you just think about what is required to decide to brush your teeth and then go and do it. So you're going to make that decision, then you need the hand-eye coordination of like walking up the stairs and knowing which part of the bed of the house the toothbrush is in. Then you need to open your cupboard, so all, you know, different parts, the, the bit of your brain that tells your right hand to open the cupboard is quite different to the part of your brain that says look for the toothpaste, which is quite different to the part that sort of smells the toothpaste or thinks about where the water is. There are so many different parts of your brain that are working simultaneously. You actually do grow neural connections between seemingly disparate parts of the brain when you're doing tasks that seem really basic because you don't need to think about it because you've done it for so long. But when you start doing a, t a task that you've never done before, and it does not need to be, you know, learning Russian or picking up a Tolstoy novel, you don't need to do any of that. It's the simplest things that make your brain try and link the parts of your brain that 
feel with your left hand and pull with your right hand and see with your eyes and hear with your ears, those are all very different parts of your brain that now need to start making their own connections. And when you speak about hands, I immediately think of um, petting my dog and I know that you've got some research around owning a pet as well. Yes, again, it's not that robust and possibly um, the pet ownership and, say, you know, saving your brain and preventing um, poor brain health is intermediated by the fact that, you know, pets often make you so happy and, you know, there's a very strong link to mental health. They make you get up in the morning and go for a walk. Like your dog is not going to forgive you if you just sleep in. Like that's not going to happen. You've got to get up. So your circadian rhythms are sort of maintained. They're quite social. You're often out and about. You're now talking to other doggy people. So it's hard to know which part of owning a pet is so good for your brain. But we've got lots of small studies that show that even owning a fish, I know that sounds really dumb, but even owning a fish seems to be quite good for your brain. Or as a girlfriend of mine says, anything with two eyes. Yes, we'll take the two eyes. That sounds great. (laughs) We we won't do eight eyes. I find (laughs) eight eyes pets a a little weird. 